Resurface is a podcast presented to you by me, your host, Emily Utrup. In each episode, I'll talk to athletes and industry leaders who have faced adversity. And through shared vulnerability, I'll explore the mental and emotional challenges they have faced and discover the strategies they have used to not only bounce back, but to come back stronger than ever. I want to motivate and inspire you to show your vulnerability, acknowledge your fears, and to follow your dreams. Hey everyone, welcome to the fourth episode of Resurface. Today I am joined in the studio by psychologist Rui Marcus. Uh, Rui, welcome. Um, it's such an honor to have you here today. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here. I actually got the, the idea to have you here on the podcast after my conversation with Carlos and with Nick because we talked a lot about some of the struggles athletes go, to, go through mentally, both during their car- career and after their career. And especially Carlos, who works with you, was telling me a lot about the work he's been doing with you and how much it had helped him and and how he wished that he started way before working with a psychologist or someone who does the work that you do. So that's why I asked you to be here today. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for the invitation. Um, Lovely to be here. Uh, Rui, before we dive into all the questions that I have for you, I have a lot. <laughs> um, I I think it would be really interesting if you just want to introduce yourself and maybe tell us a bit about where your interest in psychology came from and why you're so interested in helping people and helping athletes. Um, I think that would be really nice to hear. Mm, absolutely. So I'm a very passionate person about human behavior. I love that area of life. Um, And so I think that's one of the main reasons I got into psychology. It also helps that I had a really, really cool teacher back in high school. Um, She was actually a philosophy uh, teacher. And she was so inspirational that she got me so interested in thinking about, you know, things like the meaning of life, the meaning of self, um, some deeper things, a little bit more philosophical. But that kind of bridged the way to psychology. Uh, And then I just, uh, I think a little bit also through my uh, personal experience, because I had, uh, I would say, a tough childhood a little bit and a little bit uh, a challenging life uh, in my early stages of life. And so I kind of almost through intuition uh, became more, uh, became very focused and leaned uh, into a lot of um, overcoming difficulties okay, yeah. and uh, growth uh, through adversity. And so I think it was a mix of both personal experience and then being passionate about human behavior later in life that took me into the field of psychology, yeah. which I love. And do you think this, you said that you had a tough childhood growing up I don't know if it's something you want to touch more upon but do you think you have a better understanding of of the people you work with because you went through this yourself I think I think so yeah I absolutely uh, believe that the things I went through at an early age obviously shaped me and they created like the blueprint uh, for you know who I became as an adult and who I am as a professional working with people uh, in, the, in the field of stress and, and anxiety and trauma. Yeah, I mean, I, I, di- I think I navigated uh, my childhood a little bit by, like I said, by intuition. So I was kind of like in survival mode. Mm-hmm. So I kind of started to work my way through 
adversity uh, a little bit unknowingly. So I think it was a little bit unconscious. I didn't have the tools yeah. and the know-how at the time because I was too young, but I, I kind of figured it out. And I think I grew because I was, I was forced to be in uncomfortable situations. Mm-hmm. And uh, somehow, you know, sometimes people get stuck when they're in that situation. In my case, I felt that uh, I had to just, I had to, pull through somehow. And Mm -hmm. so I never really felt that I got stuck. And so that helped me become, I think, a a more resilient person as an adult. Uh, Yeah. So my childhood, basically, I grew up um, in a a difficult situation with our home. So there was some domestic violence. My father was a little bit more hostile at home. There was some turmoil. Uh, Things were a little bit uh, unstable. And then I went to a boarding school where I was away from my family uh, for a few years. I would see them once a year only. Okay. Um, and so that happened when I was about 10 years old. So that made me grow up. Uh, wow, you went to boarding school when you were 10. When I was 10, yeah. So I remember like the first night I slept in, in a boarding school and I was away from my family. Even though my family situation was a little bit uh, based on conflict, it was still family. I mean, it was still my father and my mother and my sisters. And all of a sudden I was in boarding school when I was 10 and I was sleeping in a bed that I did not know in a room that I did not know surrounded by other kids like me who I did not know. Mm -hmm. So it was the complete unknown. And I just had to uh, manage my emotions through that, uh, through those times. Yeah. Yeah. So that was difficult. Yeah. Wow. So being 10 years old and having to manage your emotions like that. That must yeah, be it was very tough. It was challenging, but uh, I felt I grew a lot through it. And um, what started out to be a very scary situation and a very uncomfortable situation eventually became in, uh, turned into a good situation. I actually began to love boarding school, mm-hmm. and I I created like I had like many great friends, uh, friendships that lasted a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're still my friends today and it made me become much more independent um self-taught a little bit also more connected with my own emotions because i had that's what i learned to do because there was nobody really to talk to except to myself yeah so was there like coming to boarding school at 10 years old was there anyone helping you on this journey or was it all you doing the work yourself Mm -hmm. or was there anyone inspiring you or Anyone mm-hmm. you could look up to during that time? Not really, not on a personal level. So uh, I had, obviously, I had the emotional support from my grandparents, which I would see every weekend. So I would, I was at boarding school, but on weekends I would go to my grandparents' house and I would stay with them. And they were very uh, lovely people. Uh, they're, they've both died since, but they're, they were very important in my life. So there was a lot of care and love from them. But I think I I took inspiration through actually uh, people who I didn't know personally, but I looked up to, you know, either through sports, uh, movies also. (laughs) And it's funny how I had so many uh, heroes, which were people that I didn't know personally, but they really inspired me through what they portrayed, either in fiction, in a movie, uh, or in real life, you know, as athletes. Can you remember any of the athletes that really inspired you? As yeah, a kid? I, I really loved Michael Jordan. Mm-hmm. Michael Jordan was one of those athletes at the time because I was growing up, so in the 80s. Yeah. 
and that's when Michael Jordan was um, becoming like the amazing athlete he, he then became in the yeah. Chicago Bulls. And I looked up to him and just the way he carried himself, you know, through sports and through life, it was like so inspirational for me. And I, I really loved that. So I really looked up to him. Um, yeah. So after boarding school, after this, then you started uh, studying psychology. Right. So then I, I, I go to high school and... Um, that's that was no longer in the, in the boarding school so it was like a, a normal school where i would uh, i was living with my grandparents on a daily basis still away from my parents though and um yeah so that's when i started to have philosophy classes and i fell in love like with philosophy like i said mm -hmm. previously and then i transitioned into psychology where i became very passionate about psychology once uh, high school was finished i went to college to university And that's when I decided to major in in uh, psychology and specifically in the area of stress and post-traumatic stress disorder. Okay, so that's what you've been working a lot with also. I know you work now with a lot of athletes as well, but you also work with people who has this this kind of traumas and and yeah, maybe something you can relate to because you went through it right. yourself. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I work specifically right now in stress inoculation, which is basically um, helping people adapt to stress and to stressful events in the best way that they can. Because it, you can never really erase stress from your life. That's mm -hmm. not possible. So sometimes you hear about stressless life, and, and that doesn't that doesn't exist. No. So stress will always exist in your life. That's not a ne necessarily a bad thing. So. Um, Stress can be good if it's manageable and if it's short term. Um, I mean, basically, that's what sports uh, is. is yeah. It's a, a short burst of stress that is applied onto your body and to your mind. And then there's a calmness that comes afterwards. And so stress in the in the right dose and amount is very healthy for you. And it's, it, it, it makes you become stronger. The problem is when stress becomes chronic. And it's yeah. like insidious and it grows in you and it just doesn't subside. And that's when it can create trauma and anxiety and, you know, eventually lead to panic attacks and just be very limiting on your life. Mm -hmm. So um, the best way you can handle that is to adapt to it, not to erase stress, but to learn how to read the signs and navigate stressful events the best way you can mm -hmm. and i help people do that through stress inoculation strategies where uh, we use different tools uh, some of them some of them are psychological tools like reframing your thoughts and regulating your self-talk uh, understanding and having awareness of what you're thinking and how that relates to what you're feeling and changing the narrative so that your self-talk helps you instead of uh, hindering you, okay? Instead okay. Of, yeah. And also I use some physiological tools like breath work, like breathing, because breathing and breath work is the fastest way to your nervous system, okay. really. It's very connected to the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system, and the way you breathe will help you regulate your physiological response to stress. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I know now I know that some of the athletes that you're working with here, and I know you also expose them to cold water, you do right. breath work, and then sometimes your therapy session is going for a walk. So it's a bit right. bit different than what you think about the, 
the traditional uh, psychologist or therapist where you will sit on a couch and you'll just talk for an hour or two. Uh, can you explain a little bit about that? Why you're bringing all those three things together? Yeah, because they're all uh, fundamental for health, uh, for mental health, really. So the fact that where my work is done outside, outdoors, uh, where you're in touch with nature and where there's movement and sometimes there's uh, what I call walking sessions where it's basically therapy. But instead of sitting on a couch, we're, a couch, we're walking, mm-hmm. you know, and, and uh, we're going through movement in context of nature. And, um, and then usually we will stop at a certain point and do some breath work or a single point focus meditation. And um, all of those elements are fundamental for mental health. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, sometimes mental health starts with the little things, the small things. And that means having, you know, a proper uh, sleeping habits, getting up at uh, early and, you know, seeing the day begin, the, the sunrise, catching outdoor sunlight, which is different than catching sunlight when you're indoors through windows. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is uh, studied uh, on a neuro, neurological um, okay. uh, context. So, and, you know, breathing air outside, being in, in, in contact with nature and movement, all these things are, are the little things that make a big difference. And in that context, we do the, the, the talk therapy. So the reframing of, of, of thoughts uh, and the regulating of self-talk, like I said, and the regulation of also your emotions and your nervous system through breath work. Cold exposure is also another tool uh, and that it's a more specific tool for building resilience and the ability to um, expose yourself to stress because basically cold water is stressful. It is very stressful. <laughs> there you go. Whether it be an ice bath, you know, a tub full of of ice, whether it be just because uh, your whole body is screaming to you like, don't do it, right? right. Yeah. It's saying, don't. Your mind says, don't do it oh, before yeah. you get into it, yeah. and then when you get into it, your body says, get out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and it's no different than real than than a lot of stressful situations that you go through in life. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing. It's like your mind is telling you, don't do it, don't get into that, and leave now. And your body has the same physiological response. So once you start to train your mind and your body to be comfortable in cold water, which is something that's screaming, get out, don't do it. Mm-hmm. Then you become, your mind becomes more fine-tuned and stronger to, re, to adapt to those other situations, other stressful situations in life mm-hmm. okay, that have nothing to do with cold water. Because basically it's the same response to stress. So using cold water exposure is very good for developing re- resilience it's very good for regulating, learning how to regulate your self-talk and manage your your uh, nervous system response uh, to stress. Wow, that's very, very interesting. Yeah. Um, how you can use these tools that you can actually practice to to then go out like when you get exposed to it in, in real life or what you say. Um, right. And doing that, does it also help you being aware of the signs of stress? Because that's something, you know, I talk about in, for example, in my TED talk that you just uh, heard is dealing with fear or stress right. or something like that. And one of the most important things for me was that I was aware of it myself and learning to see the signs. Is that also something you learn through this like, 
cold water exposure. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you touched on a very important um, aspect, which I always say to the people I work with, it all starts with awareness. You, I mean, you can't change what you don't recognize and what you don't know. So you have exactly. to understand, recognize it, have that awareness, and then you have the ability to change it. Mm-hmm. And so um, part of my work is helping people have that awareness and train that awareness and understand what's happening to them by exposing them in real time to stress in a controlled way, obviously. And I'm there with them, helping them navigate that stressful situation, but helping them understand what's happening, what are they feeling and why they're feeling what they're feeling and what they're thinking and how what they're thinking is connected to how they're feeling. Mm -hmm. So I help them in real time do that. And once they have that awareness, just that awareness right there is a big step and it, it just unblocks so much so many things and you know maybe the next time that they feel um, an overwhelming response to stress or even if in an extreme situation if they feel a panic attack coming they now understand what's happening yeah instead of being completely having no idea of what's happening and that uh, that that feeling of loss of control and loss of knowledge and not understanding what's happening is actually something that creates even more stress because you you people who have panic attacks know what I'm talking about. You have this feeling that you're going to die mm-hmm. and you don't understand why. You don't understand what's happening. You just feel this uneasiness that is so deep and so overwhelming to you that you feel that I have to get to a hospital because I'm going to have a heart attack or I'm going to die. I'm just going to faint. I'm, you know, something terrible is going to happen. Yeah. It's because they don't understand really what is happening. And once they have that knowledge, just that is enough to subside a little bit and, you know, tone down some of the... to manage it. Right. That's, yeah, it's very, very interesting. And I think that would lead me to the next question, which is working with athletes. And I know that you're working with a lot of different athletes, whether it's... um, jiu-jitsu fighters or big wave surfers or basketball players um uh, i think it's very interesting to hear like why you see the work you do with athletes as so important and how can you help them in their career so yeah athletes have they're faced with uh, tremendous uh challenges through their career and with a lot of stress obviously and that stress comes from different things. I mean, if you're talking about a big, a big wave surfer, uh, there's also the added stress, obviously, of practicing a life-threatening sport. So th- it's a, it's basically when they go out there, they try to control all the factors that they can, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of factors that they can't control. So you can't really control sometimes, you know, uh, what the wave is going to do. You can't completely predict what it's going to do. Or how long you're going to stay under or be under a wave once you get caught inside or whatever. So there's that added element of, okay, this is like a life and life or death experience that I'm going to have. Yeah. Obviously, they understand and they know and they have the confidence that they're not going to die. But they have that awareness that that's a possibility. So that's a really, really added uh, amount of stress that they have. Other, other sports will have all maybe not as much that extreme life or death situation, but yeah, I mean, jujitsu, MMA have a little bit of that because you're going to step into a ring with somebody and you're going to fight. You don't, it's not a life and or death situation, but I mean, there's a lot of 
but you know you're gonna take a punch. Yeah, you're, you're gonna, gonna hurt. You, you know it's gonna hurt. You know it's gonna be uncomfortable, and you know you don't know how much it's going to hurt. Yeah, you're expecting the best, but you have to prepare uh, obviously for the worst. And then there's other sports like basketball. I work with swimmers also, and um, that's not a life or death situation, but they still have that added amount of stress, which relates to competitiveness mm -hmm. and to results. And to one thing that I think is very important, which is other people's opinion. And, yes. and so that's something that causes a tremendous amount of pressure and stress in people. All of us, I think. Of course, yeah. But athletes, because they're being judged, because that's the way it is, either by a referee or, you know, by points. Or by the audience. By the audience who are watching, fans and, you know, family, friends. So the, the, every, all, all eyes are on them. And so there's this added pressure that they sometimes feel that they can't disappoint, they can't lose, because, you know, what, what is that going to mean? What is, what, what is that going to say about them, you know, yeah. if, they can't, if they can't win, if they, if they lose in front of everybody? If they, so if they can't manage that stress, it becomes very overwhelming, and it starts to connect a little bit with their own identity. So now they're feeling that, okay, if I can't win, if I can't handle this, I'm not a good person. This is not for me. I'm not going to have success at this. Maybe people don't like me. Maybe people don't love me. So, and once it starts to touch into your own identity, it, it, it becomes uh, overwhelming and it could become, uh, it could destructure you. So it kind of like uh, breaks you down. Yeah. So when you work with athletes, what is one of the most common struggles that you see in athletes uh, that you work with? Mm -hmm. I think that is one, one of them. Uh, I think the, the most common is that, that your identity is to maintain um, uh, that stability, maintain the structure of your identity without it breaking down through pressure of other people's opinions and you know external results. And so the way you, you kind of help navigate that is through reframing how you look at yourself, how you look at the process of competing and how you look at what a result an end result uh, really means. Okay. And I always say to people, you mean, you don't have to, uh, when it comes to winning or losing, you don't have to like to lose. I mean, nobody likes to lose. Everybody mm -hmm. likes to win. And yeah. everybody, definitely every athlete is in this, their sport to win. Of course. But that doesn't mean you have to be afraid to lose, which is different. I yeah. mean, I don't have to like to lose, but I don't have to be, and I shouldn't be afraid of losing. So taking the, the focus out of the end result and putting a little bit more focus on the whole process of growth and and what it really means to be an athlete regardless of your of your end result at a certain time uh, i think that's part of the work and uh, once they understand that they're not defined by their results mm -hmm. so just because you know they they got second third place or they didn't even make the cut for you know the world tour or whatever it doesn't mean they're a bad person it doesn't mean even that they're a bad athlete it's just Maybe that was not their year. Maybe other people had an edge over them mm -hmm. for whatever reason, because, you know, we're not in this alone. Nobody's competing alone. No. So everybody out there is also trying their best. They're also training a lot. And, and so it doesn't mean that they're less a person because they didn't make the cut for the world tour or they didn't get that result. And there's always a chance. There's always another day. Yeah. Every day there's like another opportunity. So it's also he helped them 
navigate and keeping that motivation high even if right. they lose i guess it's absolutely it's really important that to... is yeah so it's really working and fine-tuning that motivation that's a really good point you you just pointed out and the way you work on motivation is through discipline in my experience yes because you're not always going to be motivated especially after a loss you know sometimes yeah. you lose and it's like oh no yeah. you know i my motivation has been deflated yeah and i think it's with all aspects of life athlete if right. it's like you get turned down for a job or whatever you know you lose that motivation and yeah it's just that like to keep that going can be hard sometimes absolutely it's 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 many times hard it's really very difficult and that's why you have to rely on discipline because it's you know um, mood follows action you know all the time so you have to be disciplined to keep doing what you know you have to do mm-hmm even if you're not motivated for it and because the motivation will come following that discipline you know what i mean so sometimes people do you know they do it the other way around they're waiting to feel motivated to act act upon something or to do something it doesn't work that way because if you're waiting for that motivation you know maybe you know 80 or 90 percent of times you're not going to do what you have to do no so you have to keep going you have to trust and i hear here's a an important aspect is the trust and the faith you have to have faith in the process you have to trust that you don't feel like going but you're gonna do what you have to do yeah and the motivation is going to come up exactly and i think for me it's often you know we actually train together a few times a right. week at mma early in the morning and right. of course when the alarm clock rings at 6 30 it's it's very tempting to turn around and be like, nah, not going today. But I know as soon as I get up and now, as you say, it's more like a discipline for me and it's a routine. And I think it's also incorporating routines in your daily life. You know, as soon as you're down in the gym, that motivation is coming because you're already there. So I think it's like that with a lot of things. Absolutely. I completely agree. That's right. The routine is basically connected to the discipline. It's the discipline that's going to create it, that's going to turn it into a routine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then once it's a routine, it's beca- it becomes a habit and you always feel good afterwards, usually. I mean, you can see this. You can even ask anybody. It doesn't have to be an athlete. Anybody who doesn't feel like going to the gym, the person will push him, himself or herself to go to the gym. And you always listen to this. After they leave the gym, they always said, I'm glad I went. I feel much better. No one regrets right. a workout, no, right? Nobody. Nobody's, after a workout, nobody says, ah, I shouldn't have gone. Yeah. Everybody says that exactly, exactly the opposite. They, they all say, I'm so glad I went. Exactly. Yeah. But the first instinct is, I don't feel like going. Yeah. But if you can really be disciplined and turn that into routine and be consistent about it, because I, can, I think consistency is key, you're going to reap the benefits of it. Yeah. You know, mentally and physically, obviously. For sure. Also, like talking about athletes and something that I talked a lot to both Carlos and Nick about mm-hmm. is because they're both retired athletes who retired from their professional career. And when they retired, and I think that's something a lot of athletes goes through, they went through some kind of identity crisis and felt very lost and didn't know what their purpose suddenly was in life. And I think it's not only athletes going through this. I think uh, it can be, you know, 
on a personal level, it can be you're hitting retirement, you're finishing school, you know, there's when there's big changes in life, I think we can all go through this identity crisis. So is that something you see a lot in athletes? And do you have some tools, something you can use to deal with that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very common in athletes. And like you said, it's actually very common in uh, most of us. And I think it, the thing is that you people kind of fall into this trap where they think that they are what they do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you are so much more than that. That's what I always say to, to the athletes I work who are retired. It's, and once they understand that they are more than just, you know, um, that fighter, player, surfer, whatever, that they are a person, they're a, they're a human being, they're somebody's son, daughter, somebody's, you know, partner, somebody's parent sometimes, you know. Once they understand that there's so much more than just what they did during those 10, 15, 20 or whatever career they had, they start to unblock that. Because what happens is when you're an athlete for many years, people look at you for what you do, it's for what your sport is. That's it. And you're. it's almost like you are that athlete. And once the sport is done, the career is done, now you're, you don't even know who you are anymore. It's because mm-hmm. you're lost, because your identity is so connected to what you did. Yeah. And, and you see that even like in, in everyday conversations. I see that uh, sometimes... You know, people, the first, when you know somebody and you get to know somebody uh, or you're introduced to somebody, sometimes the first question they ask you is, well, so what do you do? Exactly. Yeah. So people are just concerned with what you're doing. They're not. So there's this connection of what you're doing to who you are. It's almost like it defines you. You know what I mean? Exactly. It's actually really interesting saying that I met, I met this guy a while back and he asked me, instead of saying, what do you do? He asked me, what are you passionate about? Right. And I really liked that because it was go. like, he was not trying to define me with what I was doing, but more like, Hey, what, what, a, what is your passion? What is your right. purpose? And, and I was like, really thinking about that after I was like, Oh, I want to start asking people that instead of like, what do you work with? You You're know? Right. Yeah. Exactly. That's so true. And, and even with kids, I mean, you see sometimes when you ask a little child when he's in school, he or she is in school, uh, you'll ask, uh, what do you want to be when you grow up? Mm-hmm. And they're talking about a profession. So and so right at a young age, you're kind of conditioning like who you will be is connected to what you will do. Mm-hmm. And that's wrong because you're so much more than what you just do. Yeah. You know, obviously, what you do is part of you, and and that's perfectly fine. But it's your identity cannot be so limited and constricted to what you do, mm-hmm. and that's so. That's a big challenge. A challenge that we all uh, have to navigate in life and athletes for sure, um, because they are just seen as that. You know, it's yeah. uh, you're that surfer, that basketball player, tennis player, whatever. And then it, career is done. No, I don't feel I, I'm nobody. You know, it's it's just it's not even what am I going to do from now mm. on? Because sometimes they have other plans. So they could be a coach, or they could be even in, you know in the sports uh, context, they could be something you know work in marketing, sports marketing, whatever. Yes. The their problem is who they are yeah. fundamentally on a deeper level. On a deeper level, mm-hmm. it's their identity. And so obviously the way to work through that is through, you know, in, in the work I do is through talk therapy is breaking down some concepts that have been limiting 
us you know for many years and trying to deconstruct them to build another way of looking to our, looking at ourselves and mm -hmm. and and who we fundamentally are yeah in life i guess it's even harder for athletes when for example as carla said retiring is 40 years old like mm -hmm. who am i now cannot anymore identify yourself maybe with being an athlete but carlos like told a lot about the process of working with you and but can you tell us a bit what were some of the tools that you gave him like mm -hmm. working through that yeah so basically what we do is a lot of talk therapy mm -hmm. like i said it's reframing the way you look at yourself fundamentally and and what your purpose is in life yeah i then use other tools also you know like physiological tools to regulate stress Uh, like I said, stress inoculation, because just the thought of you um, ending your career and not knowing who you are is very stressful. It is. Because yeah, it'll just break you down. So obviously there, there's physiological tools that are that we're going to practice and train to regulate also the stress. And it's because it's all connected. The way you think is connected to the way your body is going to respond and the way your body responds is also connected to the way you think. Mm -hmm. So we work on diff different dimensions and different levels, uh, but basically it's reframing the way you look at yourself and what your purpose is in life. And for that, I mean, like I said, we use talk therapy. We use a lot of journaling, which is a practice that I always try to uh, simulate in people to write about, you know, their goals in life, um, their dreams, mm -hmm. their purpose, and, and you know, uh, Or anything, any any emotion that goes through them, I think is important for them to to write down. Because when you write things, and and if you write it down on paper instead of like on the phone, it yeah. it's a different impact. So when you write things down, you're actually seeing your thoughts on paper, yeah. and almost your feelings on paper, and it makes you have the ability. It gives you the ability and the capacity to actually reflect on them in a different way. Yeah. You know, because one thing is me thinking about things. The other thing is me putting down to paper and seeing my thoughts on paper or if, even listening to myself. Like if I record myself talking and I re-listen to what I recorded, yeah, I'll be amazed at, you know, some of the things I just said. Exactly, <laughs> right? yeah. And I think it's also, I've been using journaling quite a lot as well. Like when I've been going through something and I think it's also really nice to go and revisit something you maybe wrote down three months ago, six Absolutely. months ago, because suddenly you see, oh, wow, I actually been doing a lot of progress. So you right. see that, that you actually have, you're evolved, stuck, you know, or you're you, stuck, or you're stuck. Or right. whatever. Yeah, you can really like, right. you, you can follow the process. And exactly. I feel sometimes if you don't write it down and if you don't save it anywhere, you can tend to forget almost those feeling and maybe it's something you go back to or It, and it takes us back to the awareness. Mm -hmm. So the, the ability to write and to journal and to reread what you, what, you know, and have a clear view of your process is awareness. So I can see I am aware of where I was and where I am mm -hmm. and, you know, how I progressed or not progressed and what I need to change and fine tune uh, at any moment. So I think that's really important. And again, going back to the work with Carlos and other people who have finished their career, the work on your purpose and understanding why you do what you do and why you are who you are yeah. is, is very important. 
And obviously, this is a work that should be done at an early age. I mm -hmm. think most of these, these athletes probably wouldn't have such an identity crisis when their career finishes if they had worked previously on their purpose. Exactly. Also, while they were doing their career. And, exactly. And yeah, that's really interesting. That was what I was talking a lot to Nick about, because that's actually what he's working a lot with now, trying to help athletes find purpose while they're doing their career. So right. I think that's also, you know, amazing. So you don't have this just one day to the other. You're just like, Ugh. right. Yeah. Yeah. So then because then when you finish your career, you understand that your purpose is so much bigger than just, you know, the sports you played. Mm -hmm. You know, and it could be because that's what a purpose is. A purpose has to be something that is very meaningful to you, but it's bigger than you. Yeah. It reaches out, you know, into it touches other people and it touches society and it touches life. Yeah. And and once you have that clear to yourself, uh, I mean, even if your career is over, your purpose is not over. Mm. It's still there. You're still touching people and still reaching out. It's still bigger than you, yeah. just in other ways. Yeah. You know what I mean? So what is your purpose? I like to say that I, I that my purpose is to elevate people's spirits. Right. That's 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 my purpose yeah. in life. And um that's who I am mm -hmm. and that's the way I channel my work is to elevate people's spirits. Yeah. That's so it's purpose. something that's very meaningful to me. Yeah. But it's bigger than me. Mm -hmm. And it reaches out and touches oh. far beyond me. Yeah. Oh. That's that's amazing. Um, sorry if you can hear some dogs barking in the background, guys. It's uh, it's Portugal, and there's some some neighbors' dogs out there. But uh, yeah, I think now I would love to go in and talk a little bit about vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Of course, a really sad experience. You lost your your wife to to the battle of cancer, and but you've been very very open to talk about this experience, and we obviously also connected over that because I also been really open and vulnerable sharing my story and i think it'll be really you know nice to just hear a little bit about this and also you know why you have been so open sharing this and why you think it's so important to you know also share this and talk about these things because it can be things that it can make people maybe uncomfortable talking about and hearing about but but that's maybe also why it's so important right Absolutely. I think that's why it's important to lean into it, mm -hmm. to, to lean into that discomfort, because I, I don't believe there's growth without discomfort. Mm -hmm. There has to be some discomfort. And, and it really, you grow much more when you, um, when you lean into that discomfort. And that's, uh, that's what I've been doing. Obviously, the loss of, uh, of my wife um, last year was probably one of the most uh, difficult and dark um, experiences I've ever had in life. And it, it like on different levels, it, on, on first because she was my partner and she was, she was my wife and we had like a really good and strong relationship. Yeah. Um, second, because she was my son's mother. And so I, she, she, so my, my son is 12. So he had to, he lost his mother at 11. And I had to help him navigate also the loss of a mother that he loved dearly. Yeah. And, and it's no easy task also. But again, I think the best way to do that is, um, at least for me, this is what I felt, is first I had to accept it. Yes. I think acceptance is a, is a first step mm -hmm. to unblocking a lot of things. I, I mean, if I get stuck in denial and in this uh, victim 
type of mentality where, you know, poor me and why did this happen to me and, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to get stuck and I'm not going to, I'm just going to be stuck in the same place all the time. So I decided very early on to first accept that she died and that's a fact. She's not coming back and I have to be very pragmatic about that. Yeah. Second is I have to, you know, try to be uh, as open about it as possible because that's how you deconstruct it and 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 build upon that, you know. And that really helped me help my my son and uh, me opening about it publicly through Instagram, which is something I've done, you know, yeah. through a lot of uh, journaling. Actually, some I, I share some of my uh, journal entries mm-hmm. and other things I write specifically uh, on the post. Uh, but when I started to do that, I felt that I was helping not only myself because it felt very therapeutic to me to journal and to open up about it publicly. And I felt that I was helping other people. Suddenly I started to have many messages of people going through either similar situations of loss, but other people who didn't even lose anybody. Some people just lost a job or, or or were going through separation or divorce or whatever hardship in their life. Yeah. But they always uh, somehow manage to uh, extract a message of, uh, I think, uh, the, the reoccurring theme is hope and strength and resilience through my opening up and through my vulnerability, which is something that I find curious. And I, I always say to people, being vulnerable is not the same as being weak. So actually being vulnerable is being strong. It's being so strong. Exactly. That's something I also learned. It took me a long time to learn that. Right. And so that's what I, you know, I understood. And, you know, and and my opening up and being vulnerable about this situation, I've never had a message uh, that somebody would say, oh, man, you're being weak. Mm. It's quite the opposite. Everybody's like, oh, my God, you're so strong. Oh, my God, how are you? You, I mean, you're amazing. And that's so inspirational. And thank you so much. And again, it goes back to my purpose. So it's it's very meaningful for me and to me what I'm doing, but it goes beyond me and it's touching other people's lives too. And so it's been very helpful on both levels, yeah. uh, personally and for others. And I think that's the thing with vulnerability, right? When we are able, as you say, to show the strength of vulnerability, we are also able to connect with people on a different level. Absolutely. And I feel like the connections that we make the friendships or if it's a message on instagram or whatever it's it's just so much deeper and so much um yeah it's just like it just feels like a better connection if that makes sense yeah it makes a lot of sense that's what exactly what i feel emily mm-hmm. yeah and and again going back to the victimization and not feeling not putting myself in the victim seat that was very important too because um when you put yourself in a in a victim type of situation or mentality, you start to feel hopelessness and you start to feel uh, you start to pity yourself. And none of these emotions are going to help you. Mm-hmm. Actually, they're going to uh, they're going to they're going to freeze you and they're going to make you become stuck in a place that you don't want to be with feelings that you don't want to be and that they're not going to help you do anything. Mm-hmm. So, and again, I, I had to be very pragmatic about this and understand that I'm not a victim of anything. It's just life, life has death mm-hmm. in the formula. So life is also about death. It's yeah. the circle of life. And I wish she wouldn't have died. That's the truth. Of course. But uh, she, 
like so many people, she died. And I'm not, I'm not a victim because, you know, it happens to everybody all over around the world. Yeah. You know, people die every day of every age, yeah. gender, you know, every part of society and every country in the world, people are dying at mm-hmm. every second. And so it's not something that only happened to me. Mm-hmm. It's no like, it's not like I'm a victim of anything. It's just a fact of life. And it's too bad that it happened, but it happened. Yeah. Which it didn't, but it, it happened. And now I have to move on and keep uh, living and loving life, yeah. you know, uh, the best I can. Because the fact that she died is, is something that obviously saddens me, but it doesn't mean that I have to die with her no. or, or my son has to die with her. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that wouldn't make justice even for the way she lived her life. Yeah, she would want you guys to. Uh, obviously, she, that's what she would want. And she would want me to move forward and... And I want to move forward too, because that's the way. That's the way I I honor life, not only uh, her life, yeah. but my life too, and my son's life. And is this also an advice and a tool you recommend people to use who's going through grief, whether it's losing a person, it's going through a relationship, losing a job? Mm-hmm. I think it, like grief and trauma comes in many forms, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, in it's always going, every time you have a loss, it's going to hurt, mm-hmm. you know, whether it be losing a job, uh, you know, a partner through a divorce or a partner through or a friend, you know, through death, losing something you love will hurt you, mm-hmm. period, that you have to understand that. And that's okay, it, because that's, that's a normal thing to feel is hurt. Yeah. Because who wants to, you know, who wants to let go of something that they love? Nobody. Mm-hmm. We want to hold on for as long as we can to something yeah. we love. Unfortunately, it's not possible to grip some things in a way to hold on for it forever mm-hmm. because that's not how you how it works. So I think you know acceptance is a big step yeah. to understand that okay, sometimes we win, sometimes we lose, sometimes we lose things that we love. That's hurtful, but it happens. And it, but life can go on, and I think. It, you know, some people are able to navigate these difficulties by themselves, mm-hmm. uh, but other people need help. Yeah. So, and I think asking for help is is a very brave and strong thing to do. It's it not is. weak at all. And I think that, you know, sometimes have people have a perception that, you know, asking for help is showing weakness or inability to cope with. And it's not. It's mm-hmm. quite the opposite. You have to be very aware of your limitations and be very brave and strong to reach out and ask for help. It is. And And I think that's, you can say a lot about social media, you know, it's good, it's bad. And I think we talked about that before as well. But for me, one thing I think it's really nice is that we all learn a little bit more about mental health and being aware that, you know, it's, it's okay to see a therapist and, and all these things, because I think just 10 years ago, when I was going through my trauma, it was being, you know, so young as I was, it it was not something I saw as, you know, normal that seeing a therapist, I was like, no, but, but I'm not crazy, you know, but, but that view of that have changed so much over the last 15, 20, like 15, 10 years. And I think that's, that's one of the amazing thing that, that maybe like social media and stuff like that have helped that even people who are teenagers get to see that this is a normal thing that we can all, we all need help. You know, we cannot go through this alone. 
Oh, obviously, I, I mean, I think that's very important. Yeah, to to search for help and and you know understand that mental mental health is a very important part of our lives, mm-hmm. uh, and we're not always healthy mentally. And I mean, if you, I mean, if you have some pain in your body, you're going to see a doctor. Yes. Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna look for help. You're yeah. gonna see you know, if you break your arm or your wrist or whatever. Uh, why wouldn't I look for help if I feel broken, you know, mentally, you know, and and emotionally? Yeah. I don't have to endure that. That's like me breaking an arm and carrying my broken arm, you know, throughout life without <laughs> looking for help. Yeah. Uh, so obviously, yes. I mean, mental health is very important. Social media has taken very uh, important steps in, in putting this um, subject and this uh, theme out there for people to think about and yeah. act, act upon it. I think that's very important. You have to, you should obviously search for help and understand that mental health is no different than physical health. You, know, you have to take care of yourself. And I see, even in athletes, I see that, you know, if you ask an athlete, what's more important for them to be mentally healthy or technically and physically on point when they're going to compete, most athletes will tell you that they value more than their mental ability to cope. And the reason is, and I, I've heard this many times, they say that I could be uh, very good physically and very good um, technically, but if I'm having a bad day that day, if I'm feeling like shit, can I say shit? Yeah, okay, you can. Okay. <laughs> it's okay. Carlos <laughs> so, said that a few times, okay. don't worry. <laughs> so uh, if I'm feeling like shit, I'll have a bad performance. Yeah. I won't be able, mm-hmm. you know. And the other, the, the opposite is true too. So I, they'll say that I may not be in my best physical condition and technically on point, but if I'm feeling really confident and feeling really great about myself, yeah. I'm going to have a great result exactly. and a great experience. So interesting. Isn't yeah. It? So it's really important for people to have the awareness that mental health is super important. And sometimes we could manage things on our own, but a lot of times we can't. And when we can't, I think it's very important to search for help. Yeah, and ask for help, and it's okay. And, and prioritize it... your mental health, right? And right. Do little things every day, maybe that that helps you. Whether it's talk to somebody or doing right. like some kind of routine. And I think that's something I ask everybody who's been on the podcast: what they do every day for their mental health, or do you have a routine, something you practice to like that is for you and for your mental. State. I do, and I do, and it and it it starts exactly like you said. I mean, with little habits, little things that make part of it, are part of my routine. So I get up every every morning early. I like to see the sunrise, mm-hmm. so I, I I put myself outside. I get myself outside. Uh, usually, I'll go for a run or a walk, depending on how much time I have, and you know. Um, but usually it's a run. It doesn't have to be a long run. It's a short run. It's to get my, you know, my blood pumping, my heart rate a little bit up. And, yeah. and, and then I, I go for a, a cold dip, usually in the ocean when I can. If I can't do it in the ocean, I'll do it in, in, in a pool. If I can't do it in a pool, I'll take a cold shower. But I expose myself to cold water every single day. There's no stopping. <laughs> there's no it stopping. Is. I, I adapt. Yeah. I always so there's there's really no excuses. No. I find always a solution and I try to adapt the best I can. Mm-hmm. And um, I journal every day. Uh, and I meditate regularly. 
I wouldn't say every single day, uh, but I, I have this rule, which is I never miss twice. So, which means if I don't meditate today, I make a point of meditating tomorrow okay. for sure. So, so that it doesn't become a habit not to meditate. Okay. And, and what does that give you? Meditation. I mean, the whole routine. The whole routine. What okay. It, you know, it's like I say, it's mood follows action. Every time I, I do this, when I finish doing it, I feel reinvigorated. I feel, I feel good. Yeah. You know, I feel, I feel like I'm alive and that I'm living and I feel this energy to just, you know, you know, do what I have to do that day. And sometimes things are going to go my way. Sometimes they're not, but what happens is when they go my way, I'm, you know, super grateful that they did and I'm super happy if they don't go my way I have the ability to cope with that and adapt to that and it's it doesn't you know bring me down as much as it would have if I had if I didn't have that routine so yeah, yeah. so that's because it's funny everybody who I ask this question they actually always tell me their morning routine right so I guess a morning routine and starting the day in a good way is something that's really important for for people and for their mental health and to feel strong from, and kind of as Carlos says, like I win the, the day from the beginning, you know? That's true. Yeah. And that's very well put by Carlos. Exactly. That's oh. it. it. This is a morning routine. I make, make a point of doing it like in the first early mm-hmm. hours. And that sets me up for the day. And yeah. that's just like Carlos says, I, I start winning from the beginning. You know, these are things that they're under our control really where I wouldn't say everybody, but some, you know, some people have, you know, work shifts and probably don't have the ability to wake up early and go to bed early. And obviously not everybody has the same possibility, but you know, most of us do. And we have the ability to control these things. These are factors that we, we can uh, control and it all comes down to a choice. So when, you know, your alarm clock goes off, or even if you wake up naturally without an alarm clock, you have a choice on yeah. top of the table in that moment i stay in bed and i sleep a little bit longer or i get up and i go get it and yeah. I, I i start my routine yeah. and that choice is mine so i have to be aware that i have that choice it's nobody's choice but mine and that with that choice comes um tremendous freedom you know and also responsibility but it's a good it's good that we have responsibility you know yeah. i wouldn't want to live in in a situation where I don't have freedom or responsibility <laughs> over my own actions. So it's good that I have that responsibility and that freedom of choice. Yeah. And I choose to do what works for me. That's so great. Well, I feel like I could sit and talk to you for hours. Like there's so much to unpack and <laughs> like when it comes to the mind and mental health and psychology and, but here in, in the end, I, is there anything else you'd like to add something you feel like we haven't, I've got around. Yeah, maybe I would just like to, I mean, it's not anything that we haven't talked, mm-hmm. but I would like to, again, point out the importance of opening up and, and understanding that it's okay to be vulnerable and for reaching out for help. You know, yeah. nobody does it alone. No. no, I certainly don't do it alone. I have friends, I have family, I have a support network, you know, and it's, I, I'm connected you know, to the people around me and to, and to the world. And I use that connection, you know, for me. And, and that means, you know, uh, helping others and, and, you know, um, feeling that people are grateful for me or for having me in their lives, Mm -hmm. 
but it also means for me reaching out and asking for help and for me being grateful for other people being in our life. So it's a two-way street. And and so, you know, if you feel that you need help, reach out. There's going to be people that are going to help you and they're going to be happy to be helping you and you're going to be happy to be helped. Yeah, and you'll be surprised how how well received that will be from whether your friends, your family, if you want to see a psychologist or, or whatever it is. I think, yeah, I think it's a very good point that, Absolutely. that people want to help, you know? Right. Yeah. Right. And, um, no, I think it's been such an interesting conversation. I really, uh, uh, yeah. Wow. So, so many great things. And if people who are listening would like to, you know, hear more about you or follow you, I know, like, as you, as you say, you, you use a lot of your Instagram to also write about your vulnerability, how you're feeling, how you're dealing with stuff, um, where can people find you and yeah. how can they follow your journey? Yeah, so they, they could follow me on Instagram. I usually uh, use mostly Instagram uh, as a social network to, you know, to share, you know, my, my, my story and my work. Uh, I have a personal account, which is the underscore Rui Marks. It's all um, together. It's R-U-I-M-R-Q-S without yeah. the U and the E. I'll put the um, tags right. in the description as well. Right. That's my personal Instagram. And then I have my my, pers- my professional account, which is uh, reframe underscore PT. Okay, great. Um, well, I'll put all the, the handles in the descriptions. And then I just want to say thank you so much for joining us and for giving us all these great tools and uh, for sharing your journey. Thank you, Emily. It was a pleasure to be here and I'm very happy and uh, I was able to share this time with you. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, thank you so much for listening.